3: Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Moons once again. That's right. The stuff to blow your mind tour of moons continues. We've uh, over the years we've previously covered the moons of Saturn, the moons of Jupiter, more recently the moons of Mars, and we intend to move on to the other uh, moons out there, the other lunar uh, systems. But in today's episode we're going to consider the moons of the two innermost worlds, Mercury and Venus. I see
0: a flaw in your plan immediately.
2: Yes, because here's the thing. Mercury and Venus do not have any moons. Well, that can't stop us, can it? I mean, we we could stop right there. We could just we could just call the episode. But no, we're going to keep going <laughs> because instead we're going to consider some additional questions and hypotheses associated with these two moonless worlds. Yeah, we're going to look at the question: were you know why are they moonless? Were they always moonless? Did we ever think they might have moons? And um, yeah, and so forth. Uh, and you know, what is also what does this moonless uh, aspect of Mercury and Venus seem to tell us about? the, uh, the, the, the neighborhood, the orbital neighborhood more immediately surrounding
0: the sun. All right. Well, maybe before we get into the specifics of these two planets, we should do a little bit of general moon review or revision as the Brits would say. Yes. So yes, as a refresher, uh, how does any moon tend to,
2: uh, form or arrive or what have you? Uh, how, does it be, how do you get a, a moon established in orbit? Well, as we've discussed in past episodes, uh, there seem to be um, a few different ways. One of the, the big ones is the, the impact uh, hypothesis. Now, this is basically a situation where something large collides with a given planet, knocking debris into orbit and beyond orbit, and the resulting orbital debris forms
0: into a moon. Yeah. And this seems to be the leading contender to explain the origin of our moon, Earth's moon. Uh, And the theory goes something like this very early after the Earth formed. So roughly four and a half billion years ago it had a collision with another rocky planet, which was a Mars-sized object hypothetically named Thea. And after this giant crash, most of Earth and Thea, after they crashed together, melted, and then reformed together into a new sphere that is now the Earth we live on today. But a small amount of the mass of that crash turned into debris, Uh, And that debris coalesced in orbit around the newly formed Earth and became the moon. And the collision hypothesis seems to be uh, consistent with a lot of the available evidence when it comes to Earth and its moon, including analysis of lunar material brought back by the Apollo missions. Uh, In fact, I I just dug up a a NASA press release about new research from 2020 providing further support for the giant impact hypothesis on the basis of different levels of uh, light versus heavy chlorine that are found on on the Earth and the moon. So we don't know for sure, but giant impact looks like the best explanation for how we got our moon. But there are other ways for moons to uh, come to exist. That's right. Uh,
2: Another way of looking at it is uh, the hypothesis of co-formation. So basically the moon forms along with the planet out of the same material that long ago accreted into
0: a planet. And I think this is often used to explain the likely origin of, say, the moons of Saturn, like the gas giants, I think also the moons of Jupiter. Yeah, kind of a
2: garlic knots and crazy bread. Uh, situation here (laughs) where uh, a little dough was left over in the making of the great pizza uh, and it becomes the the moon in this case i like the way you think now the next uh, uh hypothesis is the capture hypothesis and this one of course is one we talked about a good deal in our mars episode uh the moon in this case the moon itself is an object like an asteroid that is captured by
0: the planet's gravity and drawn into orbit right so uh, as you say capture is one of the proposed explanations for the moons of mars it, it fits some characteristics of those moons but not others we go into more depth about this in the episodes on phobos and Deimos. but the short version is uh, in terms of physical characteristics and composition the moons of mars look a lot like asteroids so that would mm-hmm. support the idea that they were originally orbiting the sun they were part of the asteroid belt they they somehow slipped into what's known as the hill sphere of Mars, the sort of the area around Mars where an object can fall into a stable orbit around the planet, and then they got stuck there. Uh, But there are other things about the moons of Mars, such as their orbital characteristics, uh, which are near circular and near equatorial, that don't really look like capture. Because when an object is captured, originally going on its own trajectory, you'd expect it to have a sort of more elongated elliptical orbit and also to be offset from the equator. So there are outstanding mysteries about the moons of Mars. Uh, Their characteristics seem to be a little from column A and a little from column B and maybe future missions to those moons uh, can, can tell us something that will help solve that mystery. But there is one moon in the solar system that looks absolutely like it was captured. And that is Neptune's moon Triton. Mm. Now, how would we really know this moon was captured? Well, one very big clue is that it circles Neptune in a retrograde orbit. So it orbits the planet opposite the direction of the planet's rotation. Uh, that does not look like something that would naturally happen if, say, a moon co-formed with a planet as an accretion disk.
2: Yeah, like I said, my, my main analogy that I made in the Mars episode, it's like cats, you know? If you raise a cat from a kitten, you know, there's going to be, it's maybe going to be a little more orderly situation. But if you have, have brought a, a feral cat into your house, uh, it's going to be a, wi- a bit wilder. The orbit of that cat's going to be wilder. That's the way I like to think of it anyway.
0: Oh, I, I think that's exactly right. Now, hopefully in the cat situation, it's not as doomed as the Triton capture situation. Uh, because uh, well, one thing I was reading about is how Neptune's gravity is actually sort of dragging on Triton. The fact that Triton is orbiting in retrograde to the rotation of Neptune is means the gravity is slowing down the orbit of Triton over time because they're going at cross purposes. And this is making Triton spiral a little bit closer to the planet every time it goes around. And in a few million years, I'm not sure exactly how long, but some number of million years from now, Triton will get close enough to start to get uh, tidally broken up by Neptune's gravity and maybe turn into a ring. Hmm.
2: Yeah, interesting. And then on the cat front, I mean, all cats will eventually explode. That's just science.
0: Now, these are three of the major explanations for where moons of the solar system come from. You've got, uh, yeah, like you say, impacts, co-formation, and capture. But there is actually one more major theory that has been used to explain at least the origins of Earth's moon. I don't know if it's been proposed for any other object in the solar system, uh, but this was the first fission hypothesis, uh, the idea that the moon is originally a mass of molten material that somehow was ejected from a rapidly rotating Earth at some point in its early history. Uh, This hypothesis, weird trivia, was actually advanced by the astronomer George Howard Darwin, the son of Charles Darwin. Hmm. Now, I don't think this is a widely held theory at this point. If I recall correctly, it it makes some assumptions that are kind of hard to square with other facts. Like, I think it predicts an extremely high original rotation speed for the Earth. Uh, But it is at least conceivable in theory, and it does connect to one very uh, eye-popping paper that I came across years ago that has stuck in my mind ever since, Uh, not necessarily because it's uh, very likely to be true, but just because it's a captivating image. And this is an idea that's explored in a paper published in the journal Chemical Geology in 2013 by R.J. DeMeyer et al., And the authors here argue that the fission hypothesis, the idea that the moon was somehow flung out of the Earth or spun out of the Earth, would help explain some of the isotopic similarity between Earth material and moon material. Of course, this would make sense if they originally came from the same ball. But the question is, how does the ejection of the moon actually happen? Like, how do you fling off a moon-sized chunk of a planet? Uh, Well, they've got a guess to explain this, and I want to read from their abstract. Quote, We showed that the dynamics of this scenario requires on the order of 10 to the 29 to 10 to the 30 joules almost instantaneously generated additional energy if the angular momentum of the proto-Earth was similar to that of the Earth-Moon system today. The only known source for this additional energy is nuclear fission. We showed that it is feasible to form the moon through the ejection of terrestrial silicate material triggered by a nuclear explosion at Earth's core mantle boundary, or CMB, causing a shockwave propagating through the Earth. Uh, So I'm definitely not convinced it's correct, but that is a memorable take. A naturally forming nuclear georeactor that went supercritical and blew up the planet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Still, as best I can tell, I think most scientists in the relevant fields would tell you that the giant impact hypothesis is currently the best at explaining the most. Now,
2: there's another. um, This one's this was a. A. Moon formation hypothesis. that's, that's closely related to uh, examples one and two that we made here, and that is uh, the idea of a ring of debris consolidating into a rough moon. And this is one of the hypotheses concerning the Martian moon Phobos that we discussed. And um, you know, while it's it's not something to to jump to with moons, you know, th- there is also the concept of an advanced civilization establishing an artificial moon in a planet's orbit. Again, that was one briefly held uh, hypothesis regarding Phobos. There's no evidence for this now that uh, concerning phobos there's no evidence that an artificial moon exists or has ever existed but some scientists have considered it as the sort of thing we could someday you know look for we could look for in other systems uh you know it's the kind of thing that we might do in the future if we reach the point where we have uh that level of scientific uh, power um but but again, uh, no artificial moons are known to exist. I don't think any, any moon in our solar system is currently um, thought to be artificial in form. But it's one of those things you have to sort of keep on the table, uh, you know, in the, uh, towards the back of the table. Uh, but it's, it's technically on the table. All right. So let's get to the question then. Why wouldn't any of these various processes result in moons for Mercury or Venus? So, first of all, here's some more general stats about moons in our solar system. Our solar system has a current known total of around 214 moons, this is according to NASA, that entails both 158 confirmed moons and 56 provisional moons. And all told, if you go uh, planet by planet in order, uh, you know, from the sun outward, uh, the moon count goes like this. Zero, that's Mercury. Zero, that's Venus. One, that's Earth. And then it goes to 279. Eighty-two twenty-seven. 14, and those bigger numbers in the middle are, of course, the gas giants. Now, the rest of the moons out there in that uh, that that 214 total, those are attributed to the dwarf planets: Pluto, Eris, Haumea, uh, Makemake, and Ceres. With only Ceres boasting zero moons, uh, Pluto has five. Uh, Ceres will remind you is the largest object in the asteroid belt, but it's quite small. Uh, Pluto, which has five moons, uh, again, is 14 times the size of Ceres. And Ceres is the smallest
0: recognized dwarf planet. So Ceres has none, but the larger actual planets of Mercury and Venus also have none. Yeah, now, yeah I mean, the, the reason
2: I'm rolling through all this, I guess, is just to make the point that it's like you can't just look at Mercury and say, OK, well, Mercury is the, the smallest of the recognized planets. So maybe that's why it doesn't have a, have a moon, because, again, Pluto um, uh, which we don't consider one of the core planets uh, anymore, uh, you know, it it has five moons, but it's smaller than Mercury. Uh, right. So, you know, other something else other than just the the absolute mass of the world is in play here.
0: Now, there is something that Mercury and Venus have in common, which even without knowing much about uh, how the solar system was formed, you could probably just guess is a major reason that they don't have moons, and it's that they are the closest to the sun.
2: Yeah, and this basically relates to the, the short-form simple answer to this question. This is the, the answer that you'll find across NASA's web presence, especially in various short-form and QA articles. Uh, yeah, they're just simply too close to the sun. If a moon were to orbit one of these worlds, there would be two major risks in play. If we were to venture too far from the planet it's orbiting, it would venture into an unstable orbit and the sun would capture it. And if it was uh, too close to the planet, they'd be destroyed by tidal gravitational forces. And while there is a stable orbital zone around these planets that could remain viable for billions of years, it's likely so narrow that nothing has ever been captured by it or created within that stable zone.
0: Yes And so this does apply to some extent to both of these planets, but especially to Mercury. it would mm-hmm. be really hard for Mercury to have a moon uh, and it would be and it looks like it would be somewhat difficult for Venus to have a moon, though though not as difficult as for Mercury. Right, right. So, you know, we don't know
2: for certain. Um, we know there are no moons orbiting either world now, uh, but scientists have wondered if there, were, if there have been moons in times past. So we'll get into some of these questions as, as we go planet by planet. Now, brief uh, throwback to a past episode, uh, there's the hypothetical planet Vulcan that was once thought to exist between Mercury and the Sun. And we actually call such hypothetical bodies, especially asteroids, between Mercury and the Sun, Vulcanoids. Now, Vulcan was proposed by French mathematician Urbain Le Verrier during the 19th century to account for irregularities in Mercury's orbit. that are now explained by general relativity. Uh, But occasionally you'll see some people talking about the possibility of vulcanoids. No evidence of a vulcanoid has ever been reported. Granted, it's difficult to observe things uh, that close to the sun. Uh, but it's it's interesting because we've discussed the shadowy world of potential mysteries in the trans-Plutonian outer re- reaches of the solar system. But it's also inter- interesting how the bright inner realm of the solar system can also be shrouded
0: in mysteries. Yeah, and this is one of the major themes we talked about in, in that previous episode. If you want to go look that up, it might have been a two-parter, I don't recall, but it was called The Lost Daughters of Aten, where we talked mm-hmm. about... Uh, Multiple hypothetical planets or other planets that were believed to exist at one time or another and, and were later discovered not to exist. And, and it was cool, yeah, that the idea of Vulcan, an inner planet that would explain the precession of Mercury's orbit, was in fact done away with by a, not by an observation, but by a new theory, which, as you say, was general relativity.
2: But it makes me wonder if we still have kind of a geocentric impulse in our understanding of the solar system. Like we know the Earth is not the center of the universe. We know our sun is not the center of the universe. We know our Planet orbits the sun, and yet we kind of we think about our sun. We kind of think of that as like the center of things, like, mm-hmm. and therefore it should be the center of knowledge. It should be the bright inner part of the city that we know the most about. And yeah, the outskirts are dark and mysterious. But but surely the inner area, the place right next to the light, we shouldn't have any any mysteries or outstanding questions about that. But but we do because we don't we don't live there. We live uh, we're more in the suburbs. <laughs> The Goldilocks suburbs.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, w- another way you could think about it is when we're looking for stuff way out in the, in the dark, uh, that's the problem is too little signal. We're, when we're looking for things really close to the sun, there's too much noise. Yeah.
2: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
0: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, StraightForward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner now. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
2: All right, well let's let's talk some more about Mercury here. So, uh, again, Mercury has no moons, and this knowledge is based on observation, number crunching, and two previous missions to Mercury. Mariner 10, which launched in 1973, which conducted one flyby of Venus and three flybys of Mercury, and the other is Messenger, launched in 2004, which did two Venus flybys, three Mercury flybys, and an orbital insertion, achieving a uh, a quote-unquote perfect orbit before it ran out of fuel for um, for alterations and its orbit decayed. And in 2014, it crashed into Mercury's
0: surface. So it didn't see any moons.
2: Correct. No uh, no moons were observed. And I don't think there are any serious scientific arguments for the existence of, uh, of, of, a, of a Mercurian moon today. Uh, but this hasn't always been the case. So I thought we might go back in time to 1974, and before we get into this, I need to drive home something I've probably said before uh, and, and, and related before, and that is that I, I do not like April Fool's Day.
0: It's it's abominable. It should be illegal. I regret yeah. every time I've done an April Fool's Day thing in the past. I resent everybody who does April Fool's Day things today, especially given I, I just earlier uh, earlier this morning was reading about an article in a respectable, I'm not going to name names, but an article in a respectable publication that in a hugely embarrassing mistake, uh, extensively referred to as a source, an April Fool's Day article, Uh, an interview with an author that didn't actually take place and was posted originally as an April Fool's hoax. And I, I live in constant Fear that this is going to happen to me, that I'm just not going to notice that something was an April Fool's joke and I'll think it was real and refer to it on this show and just die. Yeah, it's
2: I mean, it's a celebration of low hanging fruit and so and like cheap gotcha uh, humor. And and it's it's often used by like reputable, like reputable people and sources engage in it. And yeah, it makes it confusing later on when you're like going back through the archives of something. And then you're like, wait, all right, this is this is April 1st. This is or this is, uh, you know, the day before or the day after April 1st. And, you know, it's it's if we're going to celebrate April Fool's Day, we can't. We can't like not do other news on that day, you know. It's that's ridiculous. Uh, so anyway, I'm we we mention all this because uh, the the, um, the the incident that we're discussing in 1974 uh, it was covered in the New York Times on April 1st, 1974. But this is a legitimate news article by Walter Sullivan and not an April Fool's Day joke. Uh, but really, part of me wishes they could have just held onto this one and published it on April 2nd. And this was confounded uh, by the, I mean, our confusion was confounded anyway, when you found an actual April Fool's Day joke by, uh, was this by NASA um, uh, that came out many years later?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this was posted on April Fool's Day 2012. It's now labeled April Fool's Day. I don't know if it was at the time. And it was the announcement of a discovery of a moon of Mercury. Yes. As, imagine our confusion. Yeah. Uh, so, um I think it was posted maybe as uh, NASA's astronomy picture of the day that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's called mooning Mercury T he, and it <laughs> says that there's a moon that is approximately 70 meters or 230 feet in diameter that orbits Mercury at a mean distance of 14,300 kilometers. The proposed name for the moon is Caduceus named after the staff that's carried by the Roman God, Mercury, Uh, And and this it just it reads like a real uh, piece of of NASA uh, copy. You know, it's not just like an obvious wet joke. So imagine my irritation in reading (laughs) about this and then trying to figure out if this is somehow related to the April 1st news article you're talking about from decades previous.
2: Yeah, because the link you shared here for this, uh, for, for this, aside from the tag, April Fool's Day, there's no punchline in this, or at least none that resonates with, uh, with, with me or, or, or certainly the casual reader. Yeah. Um, like, there needs to be some, uh, in, in my opinion, there, you need to get to that like ridiculous point where it's clear that they're messing with us. But, but at any rate, yes. So uh, I, I did a little research on this just to be sure uh, because it made me nervous as well. According to David Dickinson, Dickinson in Universe Today, in the article Astronomical Pranks of April Fool's Past, Dickinson writes that, quote, Spurious moons are apparently the low hanging fruit of astronomical April Fool's pranks. And so he mentions this one specifically, but does point out that there was indeed uh, yeah there was indeed a 2012 April Fools Day joke about mercury having a moon but that the 1974 confusion uh and subsequent uh, you know press coverage of it was legitimate so Okay. Again, maybe we're making too big a deal out of this, but I <laughs> I, I want to be clear, like this is not an April Fool's joke, uh, The the 1974 publication here.
0: Okay, so the 74 article was about something that they thought had been discovered perhaps by the Mariner 10— Yes, and I'm going to read from part of it here.
2: Okay, uh, Pasadena, California, March 31st. That's refreshing that the it's actually tagged the day before. Um, oh, okay. Quote: An ultraviolet scanner aboard the Mariner 10 spacecraft has detected what seems to be a small moon in orbit around Mercury. It would be the first moon discovered orbiting either Venus or Mercury, the two planets between the Sun and the orbit of Earth. Then it goes on for a bit. It comes back. Mariner 10 flew by Mercury Friday for the first close-up reconnaissance of that planet. The mysterious object that may be in orbit around Mercury was reported by Dr. Lyle Broadfoot of Kitt Peak National Observatory in Arizona and Dr. Michael McElroy of Harvard University. From the observations so far, it appears to be moving at about 10,000 miles an hour relative to the planet in rather eccentric or egg-shaped orbit roughly 15,000 miles above Mercury's surface and more or less in the planet's equatorial plane. It is thought to be far enough from Mercury to be spared destruction from stresses induced by the planet's gravity. However, as noted by Dr. Bruce C. Murray of the California Institute of Technology, the head of the picture interpreting team, any moon of Mercury would be subject to a, quote, tidal tug of war between that planet and the sun.
0: All right. So it seems like some of the same concerns we've already talked about are being stressed as, as possible reasons to be skeptical of this discovery at the time. And it would turn out that this discovery at the time was a false one.
2: Right. And, and I should also point out the article, which you can read in full in the New York Times archives. It goes on to speculate that this might be uh, an asteroid captured by the planet's gravity, but then also goes on to just talk about a number of other interesting additional findings that were coming in from the Mariner 10 spacecraft at that point. But, yeah, looking at it, especially, you know, with knowing uh, what we know now, so the, this is what occurred. The, the details of this seem to be that one of Mariner Ten's instruments registered a bright UV emission, uh, what we would call now a far UV, uh, that seemed out of place. Then it was gone the next day. Then three days later, it was back. And seemed to be coming from an object that, as Swedish astronomy author Paul uh, Schleiter explains in, uh, in, in uh, Hypothetical Planets, uh, quote, seemingly detached itself from Mercury. So one idea was, well, that maybe we're looking at a star, uh, you know, we're just watching, you know, we're seeing the light of a star uh, as, it, as as the, the planet is moving between us and the light of that star. But then it, would, it was observed that the emissions were in two directions, and they thought, well, maybe it's a great, it's a great deal closer to us, like something orbiting Mercury. But subsequent data indicated that it was not, in fact, something orbiting mer- Mercury. It was not a moon. It seemed to move. Then it seemed to move beyond Mercury. And then it was determined that this actually yeah, was not a moon, was not something orbiting Mercury. It was bright UV light stemming from the binary star system 31 Craterus, uh, located th- uh, 3,166.63 light years away from Earth. But this finding itself ended up proving very useful because it was the realization that extreme UV could travel uh, this well across interstellar space. Oh, interesting.
0: So, despite what you may have read, April Fool's Day or otherwise, Mercury has no moon. It's probably not ever going to have a moon. Uh, just this is not a happy place for moons to live. Right. But for a brief moment there, it
2: apparently seemed possible, Uh, but it seemed possible because there was uh, because of the the information we were receiving and we didn't know know quite how to analyze it and how to understand it. But then subsequently we did. And this is not the only example of uh, far UV. There are are other examples that have subsequently been uh, 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 been detected. So it's not this alone is not an anomaly.
0: Right. Well, are you ready to talk about the planet Venus? Let's do it. So Venus is, as we said earlier, another planet without a moon, though it wouldn't be as surprising to find a moon orbiting Venus as it would be to find one orbiting Mercury. Observation of Venus through a telescope actually has a very interesting history with a lot of cool controversies and and mysteries in it. Uh, one example that we've talked about on the show before, I know, is that uh, the observation of Venus was one of the lines of evidence offered by Galileo in support of the heliocentric model of the solar system. Uh, now, there were a number of arguments he offered. One was based on observations of the surface of the moon through a telescope. You know, when you look at mm-hmm. the surface of the moon, it appears cratered and to have terrain uh, going against the idea that these objects in the heavens are just sort of like perfectly smooth, ideal bodies. in Instead, it looks like the moon is made of rock, much like the Earth is. And then the other things where he saw the, uh, the Galilean moons named for him of Jupiter. Uh, and so the observation that there could be things orbiting another planet like Jupiter made it seem like, well, then maybe not everything orbits the Earth. Maybe just things orbit other things. And so it seems more plausible that the Earth could be orbiting the sun. But then also, one of the lines of evidence he produced had to do with the observation of the phases of Venus. Of course, Venus, from our perspective, has phases just like our moon. And the question is, why? Why why does our moon have phases to begin with? Well, the moon is full when it's on the opposite side of the Earth from the sun, allowing sunlight to reflect off of the full disk back in our direction. So the phases of a spherical object that we see in the sky are determined by our viewing angle of the day side of that object. You know, the sun is always shining on half of that sphere. What is our viewing angle on the, on the brightly lit half? And Galileo observed that Venus also went through phases like this that would be consistent with it orbiting the sun rather than the earth. For example, appearing more as a half disk when it's further away from the sun, but growing full when it neared alignment with the sun. So if you try to picture that, when Venus is on the opposite side of the sun from us roughly, we're going to get the best view of its full day side. But another one we've talked about before uh was the interesting issue of the ashen light. Do you remember this one? Oh yes. Yeah, uh, so this is a supposed faint glow emanating from the shaded regions of the surface of Venus which has been observed or at least claimed by a bunch of astronomers over the years. You can go back and listen to our full episode on that if you want to know more. But the planet Venus has also been subject to spurious satellite sightings. <laughs> And uh, I figured we should talk about a few. So one of the Venusian moon sightings, and this is probably the first ever, was by a 17th century Neapolitan astronomer named Francesco Fontana. And Rob, I've attached a picture for you to look at of this guy. I, I don't know how accurate this drawing of him is. Actually, it's an engraving from the 17th century, I guess. Or actually, I'm not sure when this was produced. But in this picture, he looks like he's up to no good. He looks like mm-hmm. he's thinking about I don't know, going through your trash or something.
2: Yeah, he looks kind of like a like, kind of like a Cabbage Patch
0: doll, a little bit, like a, <laughs> a slightly sinister Cabbage Patch doll with a with a mustache and goatee. Fontana was actually originally a lawyer by training. He studied law at the University of Naples. But apparently at some point his interests shifted and he became more uh, interested in the study of mathematics and astronomy. And uh, so Fontana actually became one of the early telescope makers of the telescope revolution. Now, another thing you'll recall that we've talked about before, I think this was actually in an invention episode we did on the telescope – um it's difficult to say really with with confidence who should get credit for inventing the telescope because you can make arguments uh, you know, like what really counts as the invention and when did they first have it? You know, was it Galileo? Was it Lippershey? Uh Something was sort of in the air in the early 1600s. And a lot of people were experimenting with lenses and magnification in this first decade of the 1600s. Galileo's famous initial observations were in 1609. But Francesco Fontana was part of this movement also. He was making telescopes right around the same time. And according to the Danish historian of science, Helga Krag, in his book, The Moon That Wasn't, Fontana was one of the most respected early telescope makers in Italy, and he achieved high levels of magnification at the time by pairing together two convex ocular lenses in, in alignment. But this reputation for making high magnification telescopes did not necessarily translate into a reputation for being a good astronomer or being a good scientist. But try he did. Uh, Krog writes that by using a telescope of his own design, Fontana was able to produce the first known drawings of Mars in the 1630s. Though, unfortunately, his drawings appear to be based mostly on optical illusions rather than genuine surface detail. And uh, so to read from Krog here, quote, in observations of 1636 and 1638, Fontana saw in the middle of Mars, quote, a black cone like a very dark little globule. Uh, but he was uncertain quote whether it was separate from the planet itself and a satellite of it or rather a big hollow on its disk so uh so here's a good pitch for you right the black cone of mars
2: mm. yeah this is uh, you know we've discussed the this phase of of, uh, of of the telescope and and looking for things and how, and how you know ultimately we have to remind ourselves yeah this wasn't a situation where you're taking a photograph uh, taking some getting some sort of like a high um you know, high detail, um, you know, ob- objective uh, imagery. You know, there mm-hmm. is it's someone it's a human observing uh, something. And and so all the the various optical illusions and illusions of perception uh, that are that are there just, you know, in our everyday life are also present through the telescope.
0: Right. So for the first few hundred years of astronomy. There are a lot of cases where somebody says they saw something, and somebody else looks for it, and they can't see it, and then they right. just argue back and forth, and other people chime in. Yeah, I saw it. No, I I, I didn't see it. I don't think it's there. Yeah. So uh, there's and, a lot that can go on there. You know, you can yeah you can you can just be straining
2: to see something and think you see something, and then reinforce that idea that you saw something. You may you know you may be picking up on some sort of uh, momentary uh, um you know uh, you know illusion that is uh, you know due to the, the the physical structure of the eye uh, some to do with the lenses, perhaps. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not to mention you get into atmospheric phenomena as well. Like, Mm -hmm. There's so many things that could interfere with it.
0: Yeah, totally. And a minute ago, I should, just to clarify, I think I said the first few hundred years of astronomy. I mean the first few hundred years of telescope astronomy. Obviously, people have been doing naked eye astronomy for a long, long time. But so, yeah, so Fontana was, as we say, a respected telescope maker, but his astronomical observations were not similarly respected by his peers. In fact, uh, this book I was, I'm talking about by, uh, by Helga Kroc uh, just catalogs a bunch of people talking trash about Fant- Fontana. <laughs> a lot of them are like, this guy is not smart. He is not good. And uh, Galileo was apparently somewhat contemptuous of anything Fontana reported seeing. Uh, sort of like, yeah, he makes pretty good telescopes or at least high magnification telescopes. i so will give him that. But don't believe him if he says he saw something. That was mm-hmm. essentially Galileo's attitude. Uh, And there's a great quote in this book where Galileo's assistant, Evangelista Torricelli, was writing a letter in 1647, uh, and he was writing about Fontana's observations. He writes, quote, I have the book of foolishness observed, or rather dreamed, by Fontana in the heavens. If you want to see insane things, that is, absurdities, fictions, effronteries, and a thousand similar outrages, I will send you the book. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what a pull quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they should print that on the back. Yeah. Uh but in the 1640s Fontana made observations of Venus and looks like here he also got a lot of things incorrect. Uh so for example, one thing he thought he saw was so when he's when you're looking at Venus, he is seeing the phase of Venus, right? So it's partially illuminated. And he thought, based on the partially illuminated circle that he was seeing, that Venus must actually not be spherical, but more of an oval shape. The way he drew it makes it look like it's sort of elongated from pole to pole, which I guess a lot of planets actually are, but not to the point that you would see it as an oval like this. This is definitely exaggerated.
2: This looks like uh, more like a lima bean or something, or maybe just a straight-up bean. It looks like a great bean in the sky.
0: Yes, it is very bean or almost banana-like. Though to be fair to him, he is he's drawing, I guess, the illuminated portion of it. But still, it's it's stretched ah, yeah. out. He also drew fringes around the planet. Uh, Krog writes that this is this is not something that's actually there. This is an optical effect. Um, but here is where we get to the moon or moon-like observation. Uh, so here here to read from Krog. Krog writes quote. On the evening of 11 November 1645, Fontana observed near the center of Venus of the Venus Crescent quote, a certain spot of subdued reddish color, noting that this was quote, a new discovery hitherto unknown. He did not report the size of the spot, but from his drawing it appears that it had a radius of about one-fifth of that of Venus. The Neapolitan telescope maker further reported, and this is a block quote from Fontana himself in translation, obviously two small dots were seen to accompany Venus, which I would suppose to be her courtiers and attendants, as we shall also call those of Jupiter and Saturn. This is a new discovery, not yet published in my opinion, but it is true that they do not always appear, but only when Venus is shimmering, as will be revealed in the diagrams, and these little dots were always seen to be of a more reddish color. These little dots were, however, not always seen in the same situation on Venus, but they moved back and forth like fish in the sea. From this it can be deduced that Venus itself moves in the same way and is not attached to any part of the sky. Hmm. Okay, so moving around like little fish in the sea, he sees at least one dot, maybe sometimes multiple dots. Uh, though it might be notable that he uh, he only notices it when Venus is shimmering.
2: Hmm.
0: Now uh, Fontana's claims—he he went on to say that he saw the globes or the globe. I think at at one point he sort of resolved it to say, well, maybe there's just one of them, but he claimed to see them on multiple subsequent occasions. And his claimed observations immediately caught people's attention. A number of other astronomers expressed skepticism about Fontana's claims, though, and reported having independently searched for these moons and found nothing. Uh, so I just wanted to mention a couple of examples of his contemporaries who were n- not impressed by these claims. One was an anti Copernican astronomer named Giambattista Riccioli, uh, and I. A couple of notes on him number one i think this was actually the guy who was the first observer or one of the early observers of the so-called ashen light on venus Uh, but if he's an anti-copernican astronomer i think that means he is holding out for geocentrism which is cool Uh, but he described fontana's observation of a possible moon of venus Uh, to to be fair i don't think fontana said it was a moon or said he was certain it was a moon he just saw a dot whatever this Mm -hmm. globule was And so Riccioli, he called this observation very ungraceful, uh, which I thought was really funny. It's like, you know, oh, you saw a moon of Venus. Gross, dude. (laughs) So Krog quotes Riccioli in his his writings on this, and Riccioli says that, you know, whatever it was Fontana was looking at was, quote, either something like a meteor or a little cloud in the evening or something like sunspots in front of Venus or the lunar image of a cave and of mountains. And then he added, quote, I have never and neither has Francesco Maria Grimaldi nor Pierre Gassendi, other astronomers of the time, as seen in Book Three of his Institutionis Astronomicae, admitted ever to have observed at Venus or close to Venus any globules in any telescope. So, no globules. And I almost feel kind of bad for Fontana because it seems like, of all his contemporaries, it's like nobody likes him. He's got heliocentrists and geocentrists both insulting him constantly. <laughs> I don't know, maybe the selection of of quotations that that I've come across in this book are are especially bad. Maybe people were saying nice things about him elsewhere. But um, he would definitely not be the last to believe that he had seen a moon or some other kind of object near Venus, because here we're going to get to a much more celebrated and well-remembered astronomer, Giovanni Domenico Cassini. Mm -hmm. Who also saw the moon that supposedly didn't exist, though I think he also never said it was a moon. Uh, Cassini lived 1625 to 1712, and he was an Italo-French astronomer and mathematician who was known for having discovered multiple moons of Saturn. Uh, The Cassini space probe, which visited those moons of Saturn, was named after him. And Cassini believed that he observed a small object in orbit around Venus or near Venus multiple times, once in 1672 and then again in 1686. Uh, He thought that the object was about one quarter the diameter of Venus, and he says he observed it uh, in one case for about 15 minutes and then lost track of it. Uh, But then he has a – in one of his writings, he has a full description of his uh, observations, and this is from the observation on uh, January 25th, 1672. He says, quote, Venus was then horned, and this object, which was of diameter almost one-quarter that of Venus, was of the same shape. It was distant from the southern horn of Venus, a diameter of Venus on the western side. In these two observations, I was in doubt whether it was or was not a satellite of Venus, of such a consistence as not to be very well fitted to reflect the light of the sun and which in magnitude bore nearly the same proportion to Venus as the moon does to Earth, being at the same distance from the sun and Earth as was Venus, the phases of which it resembled. But in spite of some research I have done from time to time after these two observations, in order to complete a discovery of such great importance, I have never succeeded to see it except these two times, and this is why I suspend my judgment." So Cassini's holding off a little more. He says, I thought I saw something a couple of times separated by many years, but I'm going to reserve judgment because I'm not sure what I saw, if I saw anything. And, uh, and uh, I'm not sure it was a moon if I did see it. But in the decades that followed this, many other astronomers, I think probably dozens based on what I was reading, at some point claimed to see a satellite or companion to Venus. Uh, but then many others looked for it and failed. And of course, the observations of a moon of Venus were all wrong. We know now Venus has no moon. Uh, a number of reasons for these faulty observations have been have been advanced as possible explanations. Many involving optical illusions caused by problems with telescope lenses or interference between the telescope lens and the eye, as well as the mistaken observation of stars in the background for objects in the foreground. But there is one interesting variation on explaining these observations that was put forward by a Belgian astronomer named Jean-Charles Housseau, who was once a director of the Royal Observatory in Brussels. Housseau tried to square the circle of all these conflicting observations by suggesting that the object being observed was not a moon of Venus, but another planet which often appeared near Venus, often appeared in conjunction with it at certain mm. times of year when their uh, orbits lined up. And this also proved to be incorrect, but it's a very interesting idea. And he gave the hypothetical planet a very cool name, Nith. Yes,
2: Nyth. Uh, Nyth is interesting because this is uh, the name of an Egyptian goddess. Uh, so I had to look I had to look Knife uh, up in uh, the uh, the book on uh, Egyptian mythology by Geraldine Pinch that I've really enjoyed this year. And Pinch describes Knife um, as, quote, a formidable creator goddess who could be called the Great Mother. And the name literally means the terrifying one an imposing goddess who wore the red crown of the north and whose uh, curious symbol um, may have originally represented the click beetle. Uh, a click beetle was found near water, so there would be a link to the Nile in, in inundation. We talked about that in a previous episode and mm-hmm. its importance in Egyptian mythology. Uh, but the same symbol was later interpreted to be two arrows crossing a shield. She can be considered the mother of both Ra and Horus, but also sometimes Sobek as well. She is goddess of all things linked to the, quote, fertile primeval waters. She is the mother of snakes and the mother of crocodiles, creatures, quote, who are in the abyss. She is sometimes depicted as a crocodile-headed goddess nursing young crocodiles. And Sobek is, of course, linked to crocodiles as well. Uh, And when she spat into the abyss, the chaos god Apophis is said to have been born and so she's also the mistress of the bow which she uses to shoot down the enemies of Ra, as well as the offspring of the chaotic apophis who is uh, at least in some accounts her own offspring so anyway really cool goddess to 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 draw your name from in uh, coming up with potential names for hypothetical planets
0: oh yeah I'm all in favor of more Egyptian naming of celestial objects. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you obviously, we love Greek and Roman mythology, but, you know, there's plenty of Greek and Roman mythology already in the heavens. I, yeah, get, get Egyptian mythology more up in there and uh, all, all the mythologies.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're doing it uh, to, to a certain extent. I feel like we keep drawing names from uh, – from other cultures and other deities and, mm-hmm. uh, and other pantheons. And certainly there's no, there's no shortage of things out there to, to give fancy names to. So we'll, we'll probably run out of, of gods and goddesses first. Eventually we'll reach, you know, the point in our, our culture's uh, future where we're having to name stars, stuff like Gozer. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to draw on fictional pantheons.
0: <laughs> Very good. Though I kind of dread the day we, we get like Asteroid relore the Lord of Light. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own.
1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a gigendian. Available wherever you'll get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com/hypergig for details.
4: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly so visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert snagajob.com where america goes to hire
0: now there's one more thing i wanted to mention about venus which is an idea i came across in an astronomy paper from 2006 I'm not sure how well this has held up in the years since, but it's a suggestion that Venus could have possibly had a moon or even multiple moons in the past. And it also connects to an interesting fact about Venus, which concerns its rotation. The rotation of Venus is unusual. First of all, it's very slow. In fact, it's so slow that On Venus, a day is actually longer than a year. So the planet goes all the way around the sun before it completes a single full rotation. And the second fact is that its rotation goes in the opposite direction from most of the other planets. So the standard rotation orientation in our solar system is counterclockwise from the North Pole, but Venus spins clockwise at this creeping pace so what would these facts potentially have to do with a hypothetical moon of venus well in the year 2006 at the aas division for planetary sciences meeting there was a presentation given by a couple of caltech researchers named alex Elimi and david stevenson called why venus has no moon now given our best theories about how the early solar system forms It's pretty likely that most inner planets, planets like Earth and like Venus, would undergo heavy bombardment in their early years, including at least one large collision at some point. Uh, Now, like we already talked about, a large collision between Earth and a Mars-sized object probably created our moon. And in this study, the authors argue that the same type of catastrophic impact happened to Venus at least twice. So, according to their model, the sequence goes like this. Venus suffers a massive collision early in formation, and the resulting debris in orbit around Venus becomes its first moon because of tidal interactions with venus this moon gains momentum over time and drifts farther and farther away from the planet and actually as a side note The same thing is gradually happening to Earth's moon today, but at a very slow pace. So as the moon raises tides on Earth, the Earth contributes back to the moon's orbital energy, and the moon's orbit becomes wider and wider all the time. Uh, Elimi and Stevenson are proposing the same thing happened to Venus and its first moon that formed here. Uh, But then, according to their model, about 10 million years later or so, Venus gets hit by a giant impact again. The second impact happens at an angle and velocity that ends up reversing the planet's spin, and this would account for why Venus spins in the opposite direction from the other planets, and why its rate of rotation is so sluggish. But now, because the planet is rotating in the opposite direction, tidal interactions drag on the Moon rather than adding energy to its orbit, so the Moon spirals in instead of spiraling out, and it ends up merging into Venus. Uh, and, uh, and if there was another moon created by the second collision, it would have also fallen down and been absorbed into the planet as well. Uh, so again, this is just a model, just a hypothetical proposal. But if they are correct, Venus would have had at least one moon in the past, possibly multiple moons, but catastrophic impacts made it eat its own satellite. The violent formation of,
2: of, uh, of a moon and then the violent uh, destruction of a moon as well.
0: One strange trivia fact I came across that I wanted to mention. One of the main writers uh, who uh, was an astronomer who dispelled with the notions of a satellite for Venus and explained them away in terms of various other possible explanations for the sightings Mm -hmm. was a guy named Maximilian Hell, also known (laughs) as Father Hell. Oh, wow. Any
2: version of that name is cool. Maximilian Hell, Max Hell, Uh uh, Father Hell. Oh, man. Mr. Hell. It's very good. He will set you straight about the super hot, high pressure world.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for me.
2: Yeah, I guess that about rounds it up. I mean, it, it, I think a sizable episode about the moons of two planets that have no moons. So I think it bodes well for the future. when We, <laughs> we move back to planets uh, that actually have moons and discuss the details of those those actual actual lunar bodies. Um, so I look forward to it. And I guess uh, one thing I would like to hear from everyone, like, where do you want us to go next? Do we, do we just keep going in order? Do we look to, uh, to, to Uranus and uh, Neptune? Uh, do we do go, or do we just shoot straight to Pluto and go there? Uh, or do we start looking at, uh, at the, the, the dwarf planet? Yeah. Other dwarf planets and their, their various, uh, moons. Uh, let us know. There's also just the whole topic of, of, um, you know, talking about hypothetical moons and all is like the subject of exomoons, of moons moons around exoplanets. And uh, what we we expect to see uh, and what we have seen or haven't seen uh, in particular, Uh, this is an interesting topic as well. Or maybe you're sick of moons. I don't know. Let us know about that as well. We we cover a kind of wide variety of topics here, and we know that uh, you know some topics are, are not for for all listeners. Uh, but you know that's just part of trying to to cast a a wide net and you know to stay curious about uh, reality.
0: We promise here and now that we will never do an April Fool's Day episode where we report the existence of a spurious moon. Yes, that's the that's, that's the stuff to blow your mind. Promise.
2: All right. We're going to go ahead and close it up here then. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you thought about this episode, uh, possible future episodes, uh, anything else. Just write in and let us know. In the meantime, you can find Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, wherever you get your podcast, just look for the stuff to blow your mind podcast feed you'll find core science and culture episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays we have short form episodes on Mondays and Wednesdays and on Fridays we do weird house cinema that's uh that's the when we set the science aside and we talk about a weird movie for a little bit uh, so yeah uh, tune in
0: and if the platform gives you the ability to do so just rate review and subscribe huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your Mind.
3: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: What are you waiting for?
2: Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit
3: Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild